Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 31st of March 2013, entitled A Day Like No Other, and the Bible reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning, found in the book of Romans chapter 5. God willing, over these next moments, as we look into God's Word, we will be thinking on the thought of a day like no other. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy Word, which says in Romans 5, verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Father, we thank you again for this day, for your health, for strength. Lord, for the privilege that has been ours to just be gathered together here with each one that you've allowed to be here today. Father, we thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading and looking into now. Thank you, Lord, for preserving it through the centuries. And Father, we thank you that we can have the confidence that, Lord, as we stand today unworthy in ourselves, Lord, that we can have the confidence that, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, that you might speak to our hearts that which is impossible for man, uh, let alone this man, to speak. Father, you know the need of every individual here today. You know exactly what they need. And so, Father, we pray that through these next moments, that through your Word, that you would take to speak to hearts and give them that which, Lord, would fulfill that need today. And we will give you all the praise, all the thanks, all the glory for it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. There are many days in history that stand out for all kinds of reasons. Early in the morning on the 12th of October in the year 1492, aboard a ship that was called the Pinta, there was a sailor that suddenly began to shout, Tierra, Tierra. It was actually a three-ship fleet, the Pinta, the Nina, and the Santa Maria. They had set sail from Palos, Spain, to the Grand Canaries and from there across the Atlantic in search of a sea route to southern Asia to get to India and China for a trade route. The admiral of that fleet, an Italian explorer by the name of Christopher Columbus, he was sailing on behalf of the king and the queen of Spain. The land that they had sighted, which he eventually claimed for Spain, was an island in the Bahamas. It had an Indian name at that time of Guanahani, but he named it San Salvador. And of course, he was actually naming it after his Lord Jesus Christ. San Salvador literally translates as Holy Savior. And so the discovery, of course, Eventually, he wasn't the first European because Leif Erikson, as far as we know, was probably the first one there, but he was the first one that really set sail there, that found that land, that following that led many European countries to colonize all of the Americas, North, South, and Central. A pretty important day in history, one that was written down and that many people have read and studied since. Early in the morning on the 7th of December, 1941, a date that was declared by President Roosevelt that would live in infamy, he said. A Japanese dive bomber appeared out of the clouds over the island of Oha in the Hawaiian Islands. In fact, it was some 360 warplanes that descended upon the U.S. naval base of Pearl Harbor there, a surprise attack trying to prevent the United States from protecting the territories of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands in the Pacific Islands. That day, over 2,400 Americans were killed and almost 1,300 injured. Many ships' aircraft facilities were destroyed. But, of course, it was also the day that brought the U.S. into World War II fully. And after another four years, hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost 
a pretty important date in history, to say the least. Early in the morning of 11 September 2001, there were 19 Islamist extremists belonging to Al-Qaeda. They hijacked four passenger planes with the intent purpose of using them as suicide planes to fly into four specific targets to take out thousands of people. Of course, most of us even here today will probably remember where we were when we first saw those images of the Twin Towers tumbling down in Manhattan. We find that those two aircraft that flew into the Twin Towers, another into the Pentagon, and of course there was another one where some brave passengers actually tried to overtake the hijackers and flew it into a field. But that day, almost 3,000 lives were lost from nations all around the world. And the world began to realize that they had a different kind of enemy to reckon with. Of course, the consequences of that day were very far-reaching, and many of them are, are still with us today. An important day in history. Early in the morning of the 7th of July, 2005, the place was London. Four Islamist terrorists with homemade bombs packed in their rucksacks, suicide bombers. They were intent to take out as many lives as they could during that morning rush period on the public transport. They set out in a coordinated effort of terror. Peak travel time as thousands of people were making their way to work. They set off four bombs, three in the London Underground and a fourth on a double-decker bus. Fifty-two innocent civilians plus the four bombers dead. Over 700 others injured. Again, people were faced with a new kind of enemy because this wasn't even an outside enemy. These were homegrown terrorists. These were people that lived right here, people that were British citizens. Events like this change many people's lives forever. Many people's lives are, are touched in ways that they never would before. There are so many days in history that we could look at, and so many of them that have far-reaching consequences, both, both good and bad. I don't want to take you to a day like no other, a day that has farther-reaching consequences than these that we have mentioned or the thousands that we have not mentioned. As a matter of fact, it has farther reaching consequences than all of those days put together. You'll notice that in the illustrations that I chose, that these all took place in the morning hours, in the early part of the day. I want to go back to around the year 33 A.D., and it is the first day of the week. And again, it's very early in the morning. We find an account of that day in all of the Gospels. We'll take our reading from Matthew chapter 28. And we find that this describes to us in clear detail what took place on that morning. It says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the, the keepers did shake and became his dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. 
go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring the disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. They took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. I say to you this morning that the account that we have here and that we could, we could turn and we could read that same account in Mark, Luke, and John, but as we find it recorded here, I would say to you very clearly that this was a day like no other. How important was that day? How far-reaching are the consequences? I say to you simply as I know this morning that in the Christian faith, there is no day in history that is more important. You might say, but what about Jesus dying on the cross? Well, that's a day like no other as well. But the simple truth is, without that resurrection Sunday, Jesus dying on the cross would have been useless. Jesus paid for our sins. He died. He paid that sacrifice for our sins. But if when they put him in that grave, if he would have stayed there, then that sacrifice would not have been sufficient. He did not overcome death if he didn't rise from the grave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and he was trying to explain to this church just how important this day is that we're speaking of here. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Beginning in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. Let him not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, worthless. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep, that have already died in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable or literally pitiable. We are people to be pitied. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Why is this a day like no other? Why? Do we say that of all the days in history that none compare to this day? May I say, first of all, because as important as the events of history might be, they all pale in comparison. Some of those events literally changed the world forever. But you know, even this world, it's only temporal. We're talking here about a day that is like no other because the consequences of this day, they far outreach anything, anything in this world, anything in this life. It is within a time limit. But the consequences of this day reach right through eternity. It's an event that affects every human being that has ever lived, whether they realize it or not. Paul here is expounding in a very simple way. First of all, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very thing that he tells them, this is what has been preached to you, this is what you have believed, this is what has made you a Christian. But he goes on to point out, that in that gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you take away the resurrection, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything else doesn't really matter. None of it makes any difference. Everything we teach, everything we preach, everything that we believe is worthless. He says it's, it's just a lie. The simple truth is, is that if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then regardless of what else that we have done, regardless of what else that we do or preach or teach, 
The simple truth is, he says, we're still in our sins. And those that have died before us, that had faith in Jesus Christ, he said, they perished. There's no hope for them. Furthermore, he says, we certainly don't have any hope. There is no hope. If our only hope is in this life, what we can do, what we can gain, what we can accomplish, and you know, we're not, those things are good. Matter of fact, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of patience for people that go to do anything and don't give it their best. You know, you don't have to do it better than anybody else. But whatever it is, the Bible teaches us as Christians that we are to do everything that we do as if we were doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We should be a great example and a great testimony, and yet so many times that's not the case. You know, everything that we believe, it really hinges on this day. Without the resurrection, nothing else matters. If the, if the resurrection didn't take place, then that means the sacrifice was insufficient. And if what we have in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't sufficient, I promise you, we don't have anything within ourselves to offer. It all hinges on his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In the early part of World War II, there was a, a Navy submarine. And something had happened mechanically, and it was actually stuck on the bottom of the harbor in New York City. It seemed that everything was lost. There just simply was no hope. They had no electricity. Their oxygen was quickly running out. But those who were trying to reach them decided to make one last attempt. They wanted to rescue those sailors from what would become simply a steel coffin. The Navy sent a ship that was equipped with these specialist divers. They went over the side, they went down, and they were making that one final rescue attempt. The sailors that were trapped inside of the, the submarine, they suddenly heard this big clang. It was the metal boots of those divers as it hit upon the outside of that submarine. They quickly moved to where they'd heard that sound, and they began tapping on that steel in Morse code. And they were asking one question. Is there any hope? <laughs> they were sealed in this submarine. They had no way to get out of it. They were running out of oxygen. They want to know, is there any hope that we can get out of here? Of course, the divers on the top, having found them, they tapped back that simple message, yes, there is hope. Yes, there is hope. You see, that's the picture for us today, our dilemma. As we worship, even this Easter Sunday, you see, all of humankind is, is trapped in a, in a dreadful situation. We look around us and sometimes it seems that the world is so low on hope and we, we look for something. We look for a for a, war, a word, we work, we look for an act. We want something that will offer us hope. We see a world that oftentimes we could be discouraged as we see it plagued with war, with people killing people, with famine and people starving, mounting debt, continual destruction. And it seems that the more that we try to rescue ourselves, the more we seem to fall behind. I don't saying sometimes we feel like we're taking one step forward and two back. There doesn't seem to be a lot of progress. And sometimes, sometimes we have to wonder, it may be in a particular situation that we're caught in. It may be our own financial difficulties. It may be our own situation with people that we love and care for and we may wonder, is there any hope? 
And I just want you to grasp and realize today that because of Jesus Christ, because they found an empty tomb, there is hope. Even when there may seem to be no hope, there's hope. Why? Because we're going to sing a little later in the service, because he lives. Because he lives, the songwriter says, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Our text that we read from Romans 5.10 said, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, there was a time when every Christian, which is only a sinner, Saved by grace. <laughs> We're not any different. We can't point our finger at somebody else and say, oh, you're, you're a God-awful person. You see, the simple truth is, this is hard to digest sometimes, but we were all enemies of God. We were born on the wrong side of this spiritual battle. If you would, Adam, when he sinned in the garden, just dumped us right into the lap of Satan. Satan wants desperately to secure you for himself. He's done a pretty good job over the years. You see, it's only natural that man doesn't usually like to think of himself as an enemy of God, even if he doesn't really consider himself a friend of God or consider himself anything with God. Most people don't want to be an enemy of God just in case he might be there even. We find that we really like to think that sin is such a minor thing that somehow it can be overcome if we just put a little more effort into it, if we just do a bit better, if we just do some more good deeds. I've got to say to you today simply Nothing could be further from the truth. Sin is serious. There is nothing more deadly that you'll ever face, that you'll ever see, than sin. The wages of sin is death. You see, as you consider the reality of a day like no other, the day that, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, Maybe it helps if you consider this. Our standing before God through the natural birth. I know all of you have been born naturally. <laughs> you're there. You're physically there. You're breathing. Hopefully you're still awake. We've all been born naturally. For if when we were enemies, he says here, that's when we were in that natural birth. In other words, when we were sinners. Well, preacher, am I a sinner? If, if we are not of God, the Bible says, we're against him. You, you, you can't. There's only two sides, folks, <laughs> in our sins. We're enemies of God, and we can never really grasp that until we understand. This is what I'm saying to you, that sin is the most deadly thing in all the world. You see, God hates sin with a passion that you can't even imagine because of what it does to you. Because he loves you so much. And sin is what will destroy you. You see, every human being, past, present, and future, we've all, we've all had to deal with this thing of sin. There was only one man that ever walked upon this earth that was sinless, and his name was Jesus Christ. But Romans 3.23 concerning the rest of us says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, we might look okay when we compare ourselves to somebody else. And if you really tried hard, you can always find somebody that's worse than you. They're less loving less generous, they do more bad things, 
And it's easy. We, you know, it's kind of, it makes us feel good when we compare and say, well, I'm, I'm not so bad. I'm, I'm not as bad as that person over there. But that's not what we're talking about. He says all of sin and comes short, not of somebody else. He says of the glory of God. What about when we compare ourselves with the perfect glory of a holy God? You see, you've heard me say before that we don't become sinners. We are born sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. There's no other way to enter this world. You know, if you were diagnosed by a doctor, maybe you were found to have that terrible thing that they call malignant cancer. And it's there in your body and it's destroying you. The simple truth is, is it would do anything that we possibly could to rid ourselves of that deadly cancer, to get it away because it's going to destroy us, it's going to kill us, it's going to take our life away. And if there's any hope, we'd be grasping for that hope. See, the problem is today is we've got to finally recognize that we do have a malignant cancer within us, and it's called sin. And it's at work within us, and it's destroying us. It's eating us up. It's killing us. And if we begin to understand, then we would surely try to figure out a way out of this dilemma. Try to figure out a way to keep it from destroying me. Problem is, every effort that you put, everything that you muster up, you just can't find anything that'll work because the truth is you are powerless to rid yourself of that deadly disease called sin. You'll find yourself powerless to make things right with God. You're helplessly, hopelessly locked into a life of sin without any chance of delivering yourself. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. There, you know, when God created everything, when he created all this wondrous earth that we have around us, and when he created those human beings there in the garden, he did not create death. There was no death. He says, by one man, sin entered in. You know, God told Adam, said, Adam, everything out there is yours. For your joy, I want you to enjoy it. There's only one thing that you can't have. There's a tree right in the center of the garden. And that tree's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you take of that tree, Adam, you shall surely die. Do you think that it was because that there was a poisonous apple on that tree that if he took a bite of that apple that it would kill him? Because that's not what brought death to Adam. Adam didn't murder anybody, didn't rape anybody, didn't do any of these really horrible bad things that some of those people out there do. He did the one thing that God told him not to do. He disobeyed God. He sinned when he took of that fruit. And when he sinned, God said, you shall surely die. The sin of disobedience, sin brought death. That is the natural consequence of sin. Sin can't bring anything else. It can't bring anything good. It only brings death. But you know, that verse doesn't stop there. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That was the human race that fell that day. 
The entrance of sin into the human race sometimes is referred to as that Adamic sin. You say, but preacher, that's not fair. I used to get that from my kids sometimes. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're trying to do something, you're trying to, to do what's right. That's just not fair, Dad. Sometimes we act just like the kids do <laughs> with God. God, that's just not fair. I don't deserve this. I wasn't even there. I never met Adam. I didn't have anything to do with what Adam did in the garden. Why should I have to pay the consequences for it? You weren't there, but you were born. And because of that sinful nature that's there, you better believe the first opportunity you had, you sinned. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. We like to divide them up as those, those little white lies, those big black ones. Simple truth is so many times it's so much easier just, just not to be honest because we don't want to suffer the consequences. We don't realize. We don't realize the consequences. You see, not any one of us here nor anybody else had to be taught how to sin. I've never found that class in any college or university curriculum, anywhere that you have to go, and it's a class to teach you how to sin better. You don't have to be taught. It just comes natural to us. I know we don't like that. I don't, I don't like it in me, I promise you. I look at myself sometimes, and I, you know, instead of shouting, it isn't fair, sometimes I figure out, you know, God, what in the world are you doing? Why in the world would you want to save me? <laughs> Why would you do those things for me? Do you, do you realize who I am and what I am? Truth is, we're all sinners. And to say otherwise, you've got to call God a liar. <laughs> because he's the one that says that we have all sinned, that we've all come short. And he's wanting us to realize, look, I'm showing you, you've got this deadly, malignant sin in your life, and it's going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. But I've got the cure for it. Not because that you will suddenly become perfect, not because that you can do something or not do something or follow this set of rules or do this thing. No. Because Jesus Christ has gone and died on the cross and paid for your sin. He died in your place to prove it. The third day, they found an empty tomb. Why? The sacrifice was sufficient. The sacrifice was sufficient. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, ask a couple of questions. He said, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed, that which is created, in other words, say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus, Lord? Why did you make me like this? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? You know, every one of you are uniquely made by God, each and every one, because God formed you and made you. And it's, you know, it's one of the most miraculous things. People want to see these wonderful things, but how that God, from creating that first man and the woman, how that God could take and through that dad and that mom, he can create a new life that's both part of the dad and the mom. And yet that life is so unique, so individual. No other two people in the world could have made that child. But God takes and uses them both to bring new life. You see, if we're going to really stop and really recognize that this really was a day like no other, it helps if we recognize our standing before God. And, you know, there's so much we could say there, but our standing before God in the natural birth is not a good one. But 
Consider, secondly, our standing before God through the new birth. You see, when he said, for if when we were sinners, he went on to say, didn't he, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Suddenly our standing changes completely. If you're an enemy, if you're an enemy, you need to be reconciled. When we were his enemy, we are reconciled by the death of Christ and saved by the life of Christ. God doesn't do a patch-up job. God doesn't just take and try to mend the old and the bad. He throws it away. He discards it. He creates a new man within, a new man that is called the sons of God. We were enemies. We were on the wrong side. But God is willing to take us as enemies and to reconcile us unto himself. Think about it. Why would God want to do that? How could God love us that much? In Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, he says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. New man. That new man must be put on. That new man is a new creation. A new man that is brought into existence through the new birth. If he's new, if he's created, it means he didn't exist in the past. That new man is the one that Jesus identifies with. Jesus is the one that is reconciled an enemy of God into a son of God, into God's family. That's only possible because Jesus died for those sins that were present in that natural birth so that we could be reconciled to God. He rose again. And the truth is we only have life because he lives. Our standing before God through the natural birth, our standing before God through the new birth. And let me give you this as a final point. Consider our standing before God through the newness that is beyond. There's the natural birth. There's a new birth. But folks, birth is a beginning, not an ending. You're born to live. After experiencing that new birth, you're a new creation. You're created, the Bible says, to walk in newness of life, not just the same old life. The problem is we still have the same old flesh. We might be a new man on the inside, but the outside still looks the same. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, Therefore, we are buried with him, speaking of Jesus, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, ever so we also should walk in newness of life. Even so, he says, we should walk in newness of life. You see, that newness of life is the life of the resurrected Christ living in us. It's not the walk that saves us. But if we're saved, we then walk in this resurrected life. Our new walk has to do with that new man in Christ being demonstrated in a changed life. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The newness that is beyond the new birth, we can't suddenly make ourselves do enough things to be a Christian. We are born a natural 
birth. And with that natural birth comes sin. And sin is a destroyer. Sin brings death. But God is offering us a new birth. Remember when Nicodemus went to Jesus there in John chapter 3? I mean, this was one of the great educated men. He goes to Jesus and he's wanting to know how he, how he can be part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the one, and you know, so many times today people make light of it, make fun of it. We didn't make up the term. Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Nicodemus said, how in the world? I mean, how am I going to enter back into my mother's womb as a, as a man and be born again? That doesn't make sense. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, our standing before God through the natural birth, we're all sinners. You're not unique, and it'll kill you. It'll destroy you. But because Jesus went and died on the cross and they put him in that tomb and the third day he was gone, praise God, you can have a new birth, that spiritual birth. And it's because of the new birth, it's that new created man, then it has a new walk in life. You have great new desires, new peace, new hope. See, we're talking about a day like no other. When we begin to consider what Jesus Christ accomplished when he died on that cross, when he offered you life, and he was the first fruits when he came out of that tomb. When we were enemies, he reconciles us to God through his death. Then he saves us by his life. We who were lost in sin, we can be reconciled to God. We can be completely reconciled in Jesus Christ because he lives. We live. You see, cancer might kill you in just temporal life. We're all going to lay down these bodies at some time. But sin will destroy you in your eternal life. God doesn't want that for you. God wants you to have just the opposite. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have it everlasting. I give you this in closing. I can still remember, I still remember some things from school when I was a kid. And I can remember back in elementary school, one of those things that we learned about was that southernmost point of Africa down there. And at that point, there were these tremendous storms because of the way that, that the two oceans met there. And for centuries, nobody ever went beyond that cape. Because no ship that had ever attempted it had ever been able to return to tell about it. It was known as the Cape of Storms. But then along came this Portuguese explorer. Around the 16th century, Vasco da Gama. And he did what no man had done before. He sailed around that point. And do you know what he found on the other side of that point where there was all these storms and the raging winds and the waves? He got past that point and he found calm seas. The Cape of Storms became the Cape of Good Hope. You know, until Jesus Christ rose from the dead, death was the Cape of Storms. <laughs> all hopes of life beyond that had been, had been wrecked. But on that first Easter morning, on Resurrection Day, everything changed. You see, now, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can go through those rough storms and you can go into the calm sea with him. We find that he's the one that said, because he lives, 
you can live also. Folks, that's the heart of the Easter message. (laughs) It's a day like no other. It shows you a love greater than all loves in the world. The one that created you and placed you here. The one that in his perfect righteousness and holiness knows no death. He only knows life. But we have death that will destroy us. And he wants to give you the cure for that. And Jesus went and did that on the cross. But when he rose, because that's where your victory is at. All the religions of the world, they can take you to some famous grave somewhere. We can't take you to one as Christians because <laughs> there's nobody there. It's empty. And today it's empty for you so that you can have life. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I realize that as we even begin to try to comprehend and think, Lord, I know that it's impossible for me to even come up with the words to describe the importance of this day like no other. Lord, if events change us, events stick in our minds. Oh, I just pray that you'd help us today to recognize the glory of this day because, because of our standing before you and our natural birth. But because of this day, we can have a different standing before you in the new birth. We can have a new life, a new walk beyond that. Not because of who we are, but because of the Christ that lives in us. Lord, we know we fail you miserably. We think the wrong things. We act the wrong way. We do the wrong things. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us. Help us that day by day the Christ within us, Lord, can have more control of our lives. Help us to be more like him that others can see it. And Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, I pray that you just help us to remember, Lord, just the phenomenal importance beyond what our minds can even stretch and reach to, the importance of this day because of what you did for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.